Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of August 5th, 2019. On the show today, it's listener questions. And in our main segment, Jim previews the new memoir from Disney Imagineer, Kevin Rafferty. Speaking of Jim, let's bring in the man who considers breakfast sangria a fruit salad. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Glenn, I feel the exact same way about the grapefruit cake at the Hollywood Brown Derby. It's got grapefruit in it, which makes it a viable, realistic breakfast option. We're like 30 seconds away from a whole nutritional uh, breakfast there. Yes. Jerry Seinfeld used to do this great piece of stand-up in his act where he talked about how because people in the UK ate English muffins for breakfast and people in France ate French toast, they, they started the day off with a strong sense of who they were, where they were going to go during the day. <laughs> the, nas- the national breakfast, right. right? Whereas here, what, what are we in the United States? Scrambled egg, glazed donuts. It's lucky we make it out of the house at all. <laughs> That's right. Is there, an, is there an American food? American cheese? Uh, what else? You really couldn't have that for breakfast, could you? We steal everything. Yeah. Breakfast potatoes have to have come from Europe. I I don't know. (laughs) And we don't want to get into the whole Kellogg legacy, all right? (laughs) That's right. There's a a whole sorted uh, past there that we're going to do. All right, Jim, before we begin, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Barry C., Mickey42, John G., and Landon K., and longtime subscribers, Josh M., Chris L., and Laura H. True story, Jim. Each of these folks is responsible for one of the signature sauce flavors at Chicken Guy in Disney Springs. I'm told that Barry's bold peri-peri sauce with roasted red bell peppers, chilies, garlic, onion, and paprika, oregano, and lemon is an old family recipe that he gave to Guy Fury personally. Now you know. Okay. I'm thinking the barbecues at Barry's house must be, a, must be fascinating. Now I'm hungry. We've done nothing but talk about food. (laughs) All right, let's go to the news, Jim. Don't forget, folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, our friends at WDW Magic are reporting that Animal Kingdom is getting a new holiday decorations package this year. Here's some text from the press release, and I'm quoting, It all begins when you cross the bridge to Discovery Island, finding yourself in the midst of a celebration of winter handcrafted by the eclectic community of artists who make the island their home. It sounds like more like jail to me, but but continuing on. The village is filled with sparkling white holiday decorations. Colorful animal-inspired luminaries line the rooftops, and wireframe lanterns in the shape of beautiful birds can be found perched throughout the area. And during the day, Discovery Island springs to life with a holiday gathering of winter animals realized in the form of life-size artisan-sculpted puppets. Reindeer, foxes, polar bears, penguins, and more interact with the guests, accompanied by serenading musicians as they create a playful atmosphere of festive fun. Jim, what do you think of that? It extends the whole artisan aspect of the Discovery Village thing. All of the wonderful wood carvings you can see on the buildings there. It's just nothing to me says Christmas like it being 80 degrees in November. Yeah, I'm assuming that this starts uh, November 1st. <laughs> if, yes. If not, that's right. The Animal Kingdom doesn't have a Halloween thing. They could technically start this in August, couldn't they? <laughs> Don't I know, I know. I'm giving people I... ideas. Don't give people ideas, right? Yeah. I wonder what these puppets are going to look like. Because remember, the last, the two puppet things that I think of when I think of Disney World and puppets would be the Finding mm. Nemo show. 
right? Mm-hmm. And then the Tapestry of Nations Parade in Epcot. Two vastly different sides of the puppet coin, if you will, Jim. Both of those were done by the exact same guy, Glenn. That, that's Michael Curry. Really? He's the gentleman who did the puppets for the Broadway stage musical version of The Lion King. So oh. I would bet you, if we're talking life-size artisan sculptured puppets, that if you went out to Portland right now uh, to Michael Curry's studio, you could probably see them there being prepped. I'm interested to see life-size, life-size polar bear. That's a two-person job. In Florida, that's a good thing today. On, on the other hand, if you're, you're up in Alaska, no, get off the lawn, go eat somebody else. <laughs> Our friend uh, Scott Sanders was in uh, doing an Alaska cruise a couple of weeks ago. It was 80 degrees in Anchorage when he was there. All right. Speaking of uh, holiday makeovers, Jim, the Animal Kingdom thing comes on the heels of Tomorrowland getting its own holiday makeover. In Tomorrowland, Monsters, Inc. Uh, is getting a holiday-themed show. Space Mountain uh, will have holiday lighting and holiday tunes. I'm excited for that. And then the Tomorrowland Speedway gets uh, Christmas lights, and, uh, and decorations. In Fantasyland, Mad Tea Party gets combinations of lights and music for the holidays as well. Jim, do you remember years ago when Disney was asked why Disneyland gets holiday overlays and Disney World doesn't? Do you remember their answer to that? The people go to Walt Disney World. It's a once-in-a-lifetime vacation, and you can't shut down, say, the Haunted Mansion for six weeks that it would take to do Haunted Mansion holiday. But apparently you can do it now. <laughs> Years later, Jim, now you can do it for Space Mountain, the Animal Kingdom, Tomorrowland, the Tomorrowland Speedway, uh, Monsters, Inc., and Mad Tea Party. That's all fine now, right? Is there any mention here of the Jingle Cruise, which they did for a couple of no, years? No, but I think that's, that's going to be standardized, though, isn't it? Isn't it? I am. Although last year was sort of iffy, wasn't it? If you look at them, if you look at the Tomorrowland Speedway, or for example, if you look at Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor, I mean, these are overnight changes. You know, you bring in new software or you come in with a lighting package. The Fantasyland with four new holiday combos of lights and music. Mm. It's a relatively quick turnaround. For me, what's intriguing is to see that no haunted mansion holidays, you know, the really ambitious, tough ones to do. I also noticed that if you look at the attractions, right, so Monsters, Inc., Mm. Speedway, Mad Mm -hmm. Tea Party. Those are attractions that may need an attendance boost. I don't think it's a coincidence that this is the year that we're suddenly seeing the program bump out. Tron Coaster, realistically, that's not opening until late 2020, early 2021. Yeah, 2021, I'm thinking. And already, if you actually talk with folks on the reservation side, they're talking about the number of people who have been calling, and it's asking about the 50th anniversary. There seems to be a certain amount of concern that 2020, with, with things like Guardians, you know, still on the horizon, mm-hmm. even with Galaxy's Edge, you know, might be softer than expected. So it's like, you know, don't be surprised if we see more of these sort of short-term overlays just to sort of give people yet another excuse to get on a plane and fly down to Orlando. This is what we call in the business, folks, foreshadowing, because we're going to have, we have, a, <laughs> we have a listener question about this coming up very, very shortly. Oh, and speaking okay. of listener questions, let's uh, let's go to those. First up is a, uh, a question from a longtime listener, Patty. She says this, I just took a Walt Disney World dining survey. It asked a lot of questions about alcohol, such as how many drinks were purchased by how many people during meals. It also asked if I shared meals with a write-in text box asking why we shared. I answered to save money. Then Patty asks, Jim, do you think this is uh, for some sort of dining plan update? If we focus on the alcohol thing, I mean... If we look at some place like Epcot, which has had alcohol since 82, whereas 
The Magic Kingdom, we've really only seen that since Be Our Guest yeah, opened in... Yeah. yeah, you know, so this is Walt Disney World again, just trying to sort of take a more nuanced approach. Especially these days when... How many of us, you know, when friends are vacation at Walt Disney World, it's like your Twitter feed fills up with, and we had this, and we ate that, and we, you know. Yeah. It is now such a big part of the Disney vacation experience. It's the ride, the shows, the attractions, and the dining. Yep. So it's like, all right, how can we do this better? What what can we do? And especially if we have a generation of foodies where you get, you get a plate of something and everybody at the table shares that. It's like, okay, what what are we going to do about that? I think that's uh, that's definitely more of a trend where uh, where people order a bunch of things and mm-hmm. uh, and then share them. And I think that's why you see the proliferation of tapas and small plate style. Absolutely. Places Absolutely. in the world, yeah, it's definitely a trend. But when you think about it, how many restaurants on Disney property are behind that curve? Oh, yeah. How do we adjust our menu to reflect this is the way people are dining now? Right. Yeah, it's not the expense of the the food, right? It's more the, the communal eating of the things that is... Yeah, no, you know, it's the experience. And it's how do you make this a dining experience? Right. All right, cool. All right, Jim, on to the next question. It's from our good friend, Tim. Mm-hmm. Tim writes, I received a DVC survey this morning, Disney Vacation Club. It was a typical, how are you enjoying your membership type of survey. But the question below, a few interesting options that I thought you and Jim like to discuss the one about the Bahamas. So here it is. Mm. If all locations below had a Disney style resort available for direct booking with your Disney vacation club vacation points, how would you use your vacation points to book at each of the following? And your choices are, I would use my vacation points to stay there once a year or more. Uh, I'd stay there every few years. I'd stay once or twice in my life. I'd stay but not use my vacation points, and I would never stay at a resort there. So five options. But, Jim, the choices aren't as interesting to me as the list of cities. Let me go over them for you. So first up, Mm -hmm. uh, Orlando, Florida. We all know that. Anaheim, California, number two. No problem. Mm -hmm. Hong Kong, China. Oahu, Hawaii. Maui, Hawaii. Tokyo, Japan. Eleuthera, the Bahamas, and Lighthouse Point. Paris, France. Mm -hmm. New York, New York. Lake Tahoe, California. San Francisco, California, Shanghai, China, a ski resort in New Hampshire, a ski resort in Vail, a ski resort in Breckenridge, San Diego, California, and Miami, Florida. So those that's the list of the cities. So Jim, let's set aside the cities that have theme parks. Those are obvious DVC candidates. I note that mm-hmm. uh, Miami, San Diego, San Francisco, New York, Maui, and Oahu are all either Disney Cruise Line ports or stops and cruises. Let's talk about that one on Lighthouse Point in the Bahamas. That's the uh, second Disney Cruise Line island that just Disney just leased, right? Yeah. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you suppose they're quizzing about that one now? So I asked our friend uh, Scott Sanders from the Disney Cruise Line blog about this, and he said that Disney has the land to build the resort, and it would sort of be uh, like a make good or an olive branch, in his words, to people in the Bahamas who are concerned about the Disney land being exclusively for cruise uh, line guests. So a resort would open it up for locals to stay at in the land-based vacationers, which would give a, give it more of an appeal to people who are coming to the Bahamas for a longer stay. Also, uh, Scott points out that the previous owner or the owner before that had approval to build a resort on the property as well. So it's apparently got zoning clearance already. 
Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you saw the flyovers that our good buddy Bio Reconstruct just did of the studios yep. where we, we actually got our first real look at the Star Wars hotel. Yeah, it looked good. It did, but what's the key phrase to use when we're looking at the Star Wars Hotel, Len? Uh, it looks like a cruise, it'll be priced like a cruise line. <laughs> yes, okay, and it's small. It's a boutique. It it's a couple hundred All grams right. tops, right? Yeah, and so if you're thinking Pop Century or even just what we just saw happen over at the Coronado, uh, no, this is a very different business model. This is smaller this is more select, you know, to a, a specific clientele. This is Disney taking a, a sort of more laser-focused, nuanced approach. Ah. If you go over that list, and if you were to compare it to when Disney made the initial DVC announcements in the early 90s, right. we're circling back on a number of places, Len. Speaking you know? of circling back, uh, I noticed uh, three ski resorts mm-hmm. on that list, Jim. Jim, if we end up with Mineral King... It'll be the ultimate no idea gets thrown away uh, story for Disney. So for our new listeners, uh, the Mineral King Ski Resort was an idea that Walt himself pursued in the early 1960s. It didn't work out, but boy, not for a lack of trying. Uh, We have an episode on it in the Bandcamp archives if you're interested. Jim, ski resorts. I still remember, you know, there's a piece of concept art that's floating out there for the New Hampshire, the the, the Disney's White Mountain Resort, which had... When you drove up to the outside of the uh, the attraction, there was Goofy on a boogie board that when they switched the I just motif, found it. It is fascinating. I didn't yeah, even know this existed. So what can I tell you, Len? My, my mind is a collection of totally useless information. You know, it, so. it looks it looks sort of like the Wilderness Lodge. Uh, so, folks, here's what to, uh, uh, on Google Images, search for Disney White Mountain concept art, and it's the uh, first thing that... Uh, that comes up. Wow, that is amazing. Yeah, it's sort of like yeah. the uh, uh, a more glass version of Wilderness Lodge. But, I mean, it's definitely got an East Coast feel to it. It How does. It does. This, this, by the way, is the work of, of longtime imagineer Tim Delaney. And he did work for the company all the way back to early, early work on Living Seas. This is one of the projects Tim worked on before he left the company. And it's just, you know, fascinating what might have been. Hmm. Ski resorts. All right, we'll see what happens there. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, Jim, on to the next question. This is from uh, Joe. Hi, Lynn and Jim. Uh, I recently visited Tokyo Disney and was amazed at the differences from the U.S. parks. The rides seemed less concerned with reverence for the classics, such as Disney characters in the small world. Plus, newer properties like Zootopia had a much bigger presence. Got me wondering if th- uh, that's just a result of the freedom Imagineering has working abroad or if they're separate groups. So any insight you have on that process and how imagining you're structured would be helpful. Jim, what do you what do you think there? Realistically, it's it's more about when that particular park opened to the market. I mean, for example, 2005, we had Hong Kong Disneyland open. And f- for those folks in that area, they know Disney, but not like we do. Mm-hmm. So they were perfectly comfortable with the notion at that theme park of doing when it came time for Halloween, they did full-blown universal-style haunted house mazes that that fed directly off of Main Street. Wow. And it was just one of these things, well, of course we can do these here. That's where if you did that in the States, people would riot yep. because it's like, no, no, this, it, that's, 
you know, disrespectful to Walt's vision of what this park was. And stuff like Zootopia. I mean, there's a reason, for example, with Shanghai Disneyland, why they're building a land there that's built all around Zootopia. That was one of the very first Disney animated features to get big penetration in China. It's not a coincidence that on the heels of Frozen 2, don't be surprised if we hear about a Zootopia 2 and 3, this is a full-blown franchise that's been braced internationally and is is going to turn up in the parks, and, and that includes the stateside parks. But, you know, we've been talking about that for a while. I'd like to see what the internal plans are for for that in the domestic parks. Mm-hmm. Because I think the international parks. box office was a little bit bigger for Zootopia than for the U.S., relatively speaking. Yeah, It was. It was. But at the same time, it's honestly more a case of when you design elements that can travel, you design an attraction that can work in Shanghai, that also can work stateside. Sometimes it's down to a rad system, sometimes it's down to how you tell the story. Huh. All right, Jim, one more uh, question from Melinda. She writes, I love your podcasts. I'm wondering if the lower than anticipated attendance at Disneyland and Galaxy's Edge is an issue with the park or if Disney did too good of a job keeping people away. I was able to go twice before our passes were blocked for Disneyland for the summer and enjoyed it but now I can only go to DCA all summer. And ahead of that, I kept hearing how bad the lines were going to be, so my family and friends with passes weren't planning on trying to go for the first six months anyway. Melinda also writes, It's interesting that Disney has kept more or less the same kinds of discount terms available for the same days in 2019 as they did in 2018. For example, in 2019, there are discount rooms available from September 1st through December 24th, with certain dates such as weekends excluded. So, Jim, uh, Melinda actually brings up a good point here. It's interesting that uh, Disney's kept more or less the same kind of discount terms available for the same days in 2019 as they did in 2018. So, for example, in 2019, I checked right before we, uh, we went on the air, there are discounted rooms available from September 1st through December 24th with certain dates like weekends excluded. And the discounts at the value resorts are comparable with last year. The discounts at the deluxes are slightly less than before, but but it looks like Melinda's right. Lots of people seem to be waiting for all of Galaxy's Edge to be open, and that's not going to happen until the end of the year. So, Jim, let me ask you this question. If you look at how Millennium Falcon is doing at Disneyland, its wait times are only slightly higher than, say, Space Mountain or Splash Mountain for the same day. And some of Millennium Falcon's high wait times are because it's the new ride. But what if Galaxy's Edge isn't anything special? for overall Disney theme park attendance? What if it doesn't drive the, the 10, 20, 30% increase in attendance that Pandora did or that Harry Potter did? What does Disney do then? Do they add a third ride and hope that that does the trick? Do they learn their lessons and move on? What's the? Is there a contingency plan for this? To be honest, Len, no. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a third expansion pad. There is also space set aside for the sit-down restaurant that, you know, yep. that was featured in the early presentations. But, you know, if you talk with folks in Imagineering... The assumption was we just do Star Wars, and then, if anything, it was the notion of, okay, we just wanted to learn from what we did in Orlando and Anaheim before we did the one for Walt Disney Studios Paris. They never anticipated that this might be a somewhat problematic project. I mean, they are there are other Disney franchises that they believe strongly will bring people to the park. And it just right now, there's this sort of... You know, it's not a high-level anxiety because the, the belief is... High that, anxiety! Uh, again, there we go. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> All right. It's a belief that 
they bobbled the messaging. The, the yeah. final product is wonderful. And that fairly shortly, you know, we'll, we'll have all of the the Southern California pass holders and the deluxe, you know, that they'll be able to gain access and all will be right with the world. And likewise, uh, we're just days out now from the first cast member previews of the Galaxy's Edge for Walt Disney World. Yeah, it should, uh, should actually be starting uh, even before the podcast airs. Well, there we go. I still think it's telling that uh, that Disney decided uh, to have a media event for Walt Disney World's Galaxy's yeah, Edge opening uh, at the no. last minute, but we'll see. This has left them rattled. I mean, you know, they, they still believe they have a quality project and they'll eventually be able to write the ship here. But it's just sort of like this was not how the first summer was supposed to go. Right. That's right. They're adapting. It'll uh, it'll all be fine. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested to see how Rise of the Resistance looks because that's supposed to be the e-ticket headliner ride. Mm-hmm. All right, Jim, well, let's take a quick commercial break. And after that break, you will preview Imagineer Kevin Rafferty's new book out September 10th. He's the lead Imagineer on Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, which opens next year at Hollywood Studios, as well as a bunch of other Mickey Mouse-themed rides. We'll talk about that right after the break. Jim, I was watching uh, one of the new classic Mickey Mouse shorts over the weekend, and it reminded me that my... Uh, most anticipated ride for 2020. It's going to open at the studios early next year. That is Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. And coincidentally, imagine the imaginer who's working on that, Kevin Rafferty, has a new book out on September 10th detailing his career as an Imagineer. I understand you got a preview of that book, yes? Yes, that you know the folks at Disney Editions were nice enough to slip me a review copy. My understanding is that the D23 Expo later this month, that you folks will be able to pick up copies early there, and I think Kevin will be on hand to sign them. And This is one you definitely want to chase down, folks. Kevin is a member of the second generation of Imagineers. I mean, when he arrived at Walt Disney Imagineering, it was as they were finishing up the planning of Epcot. Mm-hmm. And so he got to work with the first-generation giants, the John Henches, in fact, I want to say he was there for sort of the changing of the guard as Mark Davis wrapped up his career in Imagineering. And, and, and in fact, one of the folks he got to work with was Claude Coates, who was one of the key designers of Pirates of the Caribbean. And, you know, you're looking forward to Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. He spent 30 years, Len, trying to get Mickey attractions. 30 years! <laughs> 30 years. All right. He talks about the book here that he worked with Claude on a theatrical show that was supposed to have celebrated the 60th birthday of Mickey Mouse. We designed the show for installation of the Carousel of Progress Theater at Disneyland. The traveling carousel venue was originally designed to tell, deliver a sequential Passage of Time style show. So our multimedia audio animatronic show which was the story of Mickey's life as told in 4X. I, I titled the show Mickey Through the Ears. And Claude got him to pitch it to Disney management. And again, this is relatively easy or, or relatively early in, in Kevin's career. And they did want to have it up and running for the summer of 88. But the problem was that it turns out there were two groups of people competing for the AA figures that were inside the Carousel of Progress building. Remember, this is where American Sings was. Right. And what ended up happening was that Tony Baxter, who had been tasked with making the zippity Doodah River Run, later renamed Splash Mountain, mm-hmm. that was considered the priority. The park needed a thrill ride. So this Mickey thing never made it off the block. Now, jump ahead to February 2001, and it's the opening day of California Adventure. 
And Tom Fitzgerald, the then head of WED, is, you know, talking to Kevin about it's time for a new Mickey show. In fact, ideally a new Mickey show that would go into the old Mickey Mouse Review Theater in, in, in Fantasyland. In Fantasyland, okay. And that show had closed in 80 and it then was sent to Tokyo. So Kevin sneaks away from the grand opening celebration at uh, California Adventure and with his team is up on the roof of the Grand Californian. <laughs> like they're eating hors d'oeuvres one minute, they're drinking drinks, they're celebrating, yeah. there's confetti. The next minute they're up on a rooftop. <laughs> there you go, there you go. What could go wrong here, Lynn? And they, they begin brainstorming what is then known as the Mickey Mouse Review 2. And it's pretty much what we know today is Mickey's Philharmonica with one key casting change. It's Philharmagic. So, okay, good. All right. Okay, here's what they dreamed up. So you get your opera glasses, you go in, and curtain rises, and just like in the show today, there are no musicians on stage, just a pile of abandoned instruments, and Mickey comes on stage, sees us, and he whistles to somebody off stage, and then uh, this little magical light done via special effects traces the theater sidewall and goes up onto the stage, and a little girl flies around, prowling things with pixie dust, and they all magically come to life, and the glow then flies out toward our faces and reveals itself to be Tinkerbell who then gives us a wink. And why Tinkerbell Line? Well, you have to remember that this is just behind the launch of Disney Princesses. So G January 2000. Uh, Jim, I think you mean uh, Disney heroines. <laughs> it's a conversation for another I've, time. All right, go ahead. I've go ahead. heard. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so Disney Consumer Products is, is casting around for another franchise that would appeal to, to young girls. And given the amount of Tinkerbell merch that sold at the parks annually, Disney Fairies was an idea that was rapidly gathering steam within the company at this point. And so with that in mind, you know, Imagineering sort of trying to get ahead of the curve here is like, let's create a show that features Tinkerbell prominently. And the idea behind PhilharMagic wasn't just that it was going to be an attraction for the Magic Kingdom of Walt Disney World. It was also going to go into Shanghai. And both of those parks had an interesting issue in that the folks that were in each park didn't primarily speak any one language. So the less dialogue-driven a show, oh, the more likely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. You know, you, you have Tinkerbell who doesn't talk, who, who communicates mostly through gesture and pantomime. So it's like, oh, this would be perfect. So, so here's the storyline they map out. So Tinkerbell does one more pass over the orchestra as Mickey begins to conduct and Tink is laying down too much pixie dust, which is now causing musical mayhem. And what basically happens is we get this whirlwind of enchanted instruments and Tinkerbell ends up getting swallowed by a tuba. And then the tuba <laughs> turns and, and swallows the audience. And we're in complete darkness at that point and a match gets lit and suddenly we're, here's Lumiere. And, you know, we, we uh, go into the be our guest number that we know today. So this is the alternate opening scene for, for PhilharMagic instead of uh, Donald. Yep. And huh. now we, we tick through the stuff that we know today. We, we Tink travels to Ariel's, Ariel's Grotto, and after Little Mermaid sings part of her world, we go to the Pride Lens and watch Simba, or participate as Simba sings, I Just Can't Wait to Be King. The batting order changes at this point, though, instead of, or at least as far as we know PhilharMagic today, instead of going from London to Agrabah, we actually started in Agrabah. Oh, we okay. watch Aladdin and Jasmine sing A Whole New World, and then we go to London, and Mr. Rafferty picks up at this point. Here we soar between buildings, tall ships, and go down along the surface of the River Thames. 
before swooping dramatically up towards the full moon. Silhouetted against the brilliant moon, we see what we think are Tink, Peter Pan, Michael, John, and Wendy, but as we draw closer, the silhouettes become more clearly defined and are actually the enchanted instruments we saw at the start of the show with Maestro Mickey still conducting in midair. And then, for some odd reason, we all crash back down to Earth. We land in the hall where we started. And the last thing to land, so to speak, is Tinkerbell, who, you know, hits a cymbal, you know. <laughs> and so Mickey makes a bow. The curtains start to drop. Tinkerbell flies out over the audience and... And in an effect that just sounds like, you know, and this is when somebody loses a hand. Yeah. Tinkerbell waves pixie dust over the audience, which causes our seats to elevate, as in they start to fold up. So as in get up, <laughs> like get, get out get of out. the theater. And she then zooms back under the curtain and the show's done. Wow. But here's the thing. They, they pitch it to Eisner summer of 2001 and Michael thinks the idea is great but quickly tosses up Tinkerbell he suggests really Donald Duck should be the disruptor okay so here's my question right why does mm -hmm. why does Eisner get to pick Donald on this I mean granted he's the CEO but like what makes his opinion better than everyone else's on this because now that you've explained it I can see Tink in this mm -hmm. role right it, it, it doesn't seem to me like it's like one idea is better than the other if you remember the show the disruptor Gets pounded on pretty hard. Yeah, but that's, and that's, that's Donald though, right? But Tink doesn't here. The problem was that it went from being a cute, magical show to a funny show. And that, in the end, was... Ah, uh, But right, again, okay. you know, once Eisner said, let's make it Donald, Kevin was like, okay, but if it's going to be Donald, it's going to be the authentic Donald. So when... Walt initially cast Donald back in the 30s. He picked Clarence Ducky Nash. And so what Kevin decides to do, because he wants the show to be authentic as possible, he goes to the audio archives, he pulls every recording session that Clarence Ducky Nash did in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. This is over 900 different sessions, Len. And proceeds to build Donald's performance out of all of the audio that Ducky did. In fact, there were only three lines in the entire attraction that he had to turn to the modern Tony Ensemble, to the gentleman who does Donald's voice today, and have him come in to do. And the, the, the lines for those of you who, who know the show, it's like, where's my hat? A pie? And thank you. It, it turns out, you know, you go through hours and hours of Donald Duck stuff, and he never said thank you. <laughs> anyway, that opens October of 2003. Uh, the Hong Kong version opens in September 2005. But to double back for a sec, we now step into 2004, where Tower of Terror has just opened at California Adventure. All right. And the belief was, it's time now to get an attraction in that park, which would entertain guests of all ages and... So, you know, they're walking around the park. They're just looking for spots that are empty in the canvas. and In, in DCA. They're in DCA. They're in walking DCA. around. Okay. Yeah, and they're walking around Paradise Pier, and they stop in front of the Boardwalk Games, and they just get to talking about how, as a guest, you give them a dollar, and they give you three shots at a prize, and there were kids who don't win, or there are people who miss the target, and, you know, they walk away empty-handed, and it's like, wouldn't it be great if we could play these games with unlimited objects to toss, not just three, and, and that everybody could always come away feeling like a winner? And and then it became, well, what if we actually got to ride through this game? And that's where the concept for Midway Mania came from. But in this case, the first idea they put out there was Mickey's Midway Mania. 
because Kevin's been trying forever to get a Mickey ride built in the parks. But then he explained that they stepped away from that concept pretty quickly because creating a story around Mickey for an attraction has always been a tough nut to crack. I personally believe this is because Mickey is every man and goes everywhere and does everything. He doesn't have a distinct role or job, as does Wreck-It Ralph or Kim Possible, and he doesn't come from an instantly recognizable place like Radiator Springs or Arendelle. Now, if Mickey had lived and worked in a carnival or state fair, Mickey's Midway Mania would have been an, a no-brainer. That's, again, why he, they're just so happy, you know, after all these years they got Mickey's Runaway Railway up out of the ground. But, Glenn, you have to pick up a copy of this book, if only to read about attractions that never got built for the parks, like the Creature's Choice Awards. <laughs> Creature's Choice <laughs> This was going to be, as a member of the audience, you were going to get to sit in on what was the Academy Awards for horror movies. And, in fact, I will send you the, the, the photo that's included as part of this book. But as part of the ceremony, they are giving a Lifetime Achievement Award to Godzilla. <laughs> and they, really? they would periodically <laughs> cut away to Godzilla as he was making his way to Disney World. And there's this wonderful shot of the spaceship Earth Ball, and Godzilla is walking through the parking lot at Epcot, crushing everyone's cars as he makes his way to Disney MGM to pick up his award. Oh. But Kevin, from the 40 years of experience, and again, this is a guy who started out washing dishes at the Plaza Inn at Disneyland. So he mm-hmm. he learned the parks inside out. And he talked about how there's this wonderful section of the book where he talks about how Jeffrey Katzenberg, as an experiment, began to bring in screenwriters over from the studio to help with projects that WI was working on. And it didn't work. And it wasn't because they weren't exceptionally talented writers. It's just that they didn't understand the real-world limitations, operational mathematics, and the practicalities of our dimensional form of entertainment, the type of stuff that takes years to understand and master. He gave the example that at one point they brought in a big-name screenwriter because they wanted to plus the American Adventure. They wanted to update it. And so they made this guy watch his show. They sent him home. They gave him a very big check to do a rewrite of the show, and his way of fixing the show was the show would now conclude with... You know, and he's there standing in front of them with his arms dramatically out. It's like the mighty eagle would spread his powerful and graceful wings and swoop down closely over the head of the audience and then with a piercing cry disappear high in the sky. And Kevin's like, well, that's all well and good, but I was wondering, how does the eagle do that? Is it attached or tethered to some sort of suspended rolling show control mechanism with the track yeah, be open? How do, you, okay, how, do you build, how do you build a flying eagle? Yeah, you know, and it's just the notion, does the crying bird have a built-in speaker in its chest or a line array of speakers? Is it hydraulic or is it electric? How does it reset for the next show? You know, if it breaks down or stops flying halfway through the audience space, does the show then shut down? Yeah. And it's just, it's one of the things you, you, you hear that sort of stuff and you begin to realize, wow, it's a lot tougher to actually design a you know rideshare or attraction than you than you, think, you, yeah. you realize. I mean, we can all do the armchair imagineer thing, but as Kevin explains, to try writing a scene where anything can happen in a brick and mortar attraction yeah. and it has to happen every few minutes, every day for years and years. Yep, this sounds like a great book. Oh, it's great fun. I'll add one particular note that you'd love, Len, that they had just recently done a story in the press about Eisner getting this enormous raise. And so 
Kevin's at this function at Imagineering in an open house and a piece of scenery falls over and this is tremendous crash and Kevin turns to a friend and goes, oh, Eisner dropped his wallet. And they come around, <laughs> I mean, they, they walk two feet and they come around the corner and there's Jane and Michael Eisner. <laughs> and, oh. you know, and, and it's one of these things where, to Eisner's credit, he looks at Kevin and immediately puts his hand on his butt and like, no, wallet's still there. Okay. <laughs> That could have gone so, one of two ways, and it went the better of the two ways. <laughs> there you go. So, no, no, definitely chase this down, folks. The ah, Disney edition book, yeah. available March, uh, excuse me, September 10th. September 10th. So, so it'll be available on Amazon? Yep, yep. You can pre-order it now. And what's the name so, of the book? Magic Journeys, My Fantastical Walt Disney Imagineering Career. By Kevin Rafferty. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm going to pre-order a copy now. Okay. All right, Jim, thanks very much for that. That was uh, super entertaining. Folks, that's yeah. going to do it for the Disney Dish Show today. On next week's show, we'll update the news and preview some new Disney patents and more. You can't get enough of us. Head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. Don't forget we're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, competing this week in the non-commercial pie division of Friday's Huckleberry Days Arts Festival and Bake Off Contest in Whitefish, Montana. Aaron, I think I speak for all of us when I say... I'll be your Huckleberry. While you're waiting, <laughs> thank you, thank you. While you're waiting for that, please go onto iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. <laughs>